Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Coming to a stop and then now all eyes focused on me is a very different experience than what I'm used to in the Lutheran Church. But uh, I do want to begin with a word of thanks uh, for how wonderful it is to be with you all today. Um, so you know a little bit about me. I know uh, Colin, Pastor Colin read off my title, Director for Evangelical Mission. Uh, if you know what that means, please let me know. Now, generally, that means I have two buckets for what I do uh, within the Lutheran Church in South Carolina. First, I work with our existing congregations to help them meet new people. The way I like to phrase that is I help congregations find people who have a home in your congregation and just don't know it yet. The other thing that I do is I work with our mission congregations, so all of our new starts, and uh, we have about seven or eight in the South Carolina Synod, so I work with them to make sure that they have the resources, uh, the accountability, all of the things uh, that make those congregations work. Um, but for me to be in that position and then to be here with you all having uh, just chartered, um, I, it is a really nice place to be because this is really kind of a full circle position for me to be in. Uh, I'm actually the product of two different mission congregations. So a little bit about my story and my family. Uh, my parents are both from Pennsylvania. My dad, out of college, got a job working for a textile company. Uh, and then six months after they got married in the early 80s, textile companies did what they did, and they all moved south. Uh, now, there's a lot of Lutherans in Pennsylvania, uh, not as many in rural Georgia, um, um, and the Christianity my parents knew in Pennsylvania was a little bit different than the Christianity of what was around in rural Georgia at the time. Uh, but fortunately, there was a group of 15 people who were likely, or who were also likewise moving to that growing Atlanta sprawl, uh, who had, uh, I think the church was 15 years old when I was born, but they decided to start this church for new people and new places. Uh, and that's where I have my, my first memories of church. Then in the early 90s, again, textile companies did what they did, and uh, my dad's was lucky enough to get bought out uh, he, uh, by Hanes Brands. So uh, the white t-shirt I've got on is still Hanes. Um, and they're headquartered in Winston-Salem. And uh, there we moved to the suburbs, Clemens, North Carolina, if uh, anybody has ever had the uh, 
luxury of driving past it, the two full uh, exits on I-40. Um, and I can still remember, I was only you know, five or six years old at the time, but I can still remember like, clearly standing at the stop, uh, top of the steps in uh, the new house, and one of the neighbors happened to stop by and say, you know, hey, just the welcome to the neighborhood thing. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And then one of my parents asked him, well, what do you do? Well, I'm the Lutheran pastor for this new church that's right around the corner here, and guess where we went to church? <laughs> Um, so all that to say, my faith, uh, my calling, uh, my job, and even the fact that I met my wife working at a Christian summer camp together, um, all of my whole faith journey has been impacted so deeply by the work that uh, mission congregations do. So grateful to be here with you all today. And uh, I also know that you're here to, for me to preach the gospel and not just tell you about my life. Uh, so what does all that have to do with this? And I'm actually hoping to make the point quite a bit, actually, because my faith is really only what it is because the church, Lutheran or otherwise, the church has only, uh, my faith is what it is because of the church working to meet new people and in new places. So first, if you hear nothing else, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this community and for the work that you do to spread the gospel. Now, I am going to start with a quick pop quiz. Who can remember, that's not Pastor Colin, where the gospel reading was set today? Caesarea Philippi. Yes, ding, ding, ding. All right. Now, if you didn't remember that, that's totally fine. I'll be honest, and I probably shouldn't, but uh, even as a preacher, sometimes I'm reading the texts and the location just kind of goes to the back of my mind. Um, but Caesarea Philippi and where it was built was considered sacred for hundreds of years before Jesus walked there, um, but it wasn't considered sacred among the Jews. And I think it should be up on the map now, but you can kind of see Caesarea Philippi and the map is up in the what, upper right-hand corner, uh, that would have been historically, if you think about the Old Testament, that's like right on the border of where the kingdom of Israel would have been. Uh, it was dedicated to the Pan, one of the Roman um, gods there. Uh, with the conquest of Alexander the Great through the area, the lingering Greek influence uh, meant there was established here a temple to the Greek god Pan. Uh, it's where people would carry out pagan rituals of sacrifice. Uh, when the Romans came, this was where the generals went for R&R. &R. They have um, pools there. It's kind of the headwaters of the rivers that run through the Holy Land. Um, and eventually it was renamed for, uh, renamed for Augustus Caesar and continued to be this place that worshipped the Greco-Roman pantheon. And so you can kind of see what it looks like, hopefully, on this slide here. Um, it's this huge rock face with these buildings that are kind of built back into the sides. You can see the pools there where people gather. Um, and along the walls, it's like these little pockets where other statues would have been carved in or built into the side of the rock face. Uh, one commentator I read this week, talk, week talked about Caesarea Philippi as being the Mount Rushmore of the Greco-Roman pantheon. And so all of this to say, Caesarea Philippi is hardly a proclamation, or Caesarea Philippi is hardly the temple. It is not Jerusalem. Uh, it is not a place that's even close to Galilee. This is where nobody feels at home. Yet because it's so far out of the way, because it's so different from the other places that Jesus does his ministry, I don't think it's a stretch to say 
that the setting is important and the result of Jesus' intentional decision to go there. So, in making my connection to what I shared, I really think this text is about evangelism and the consequences of what is accomplished here as much as it is anything else. Because it's in the shadow of the statues to Roman gods that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, we know Peter's response, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, my faith is only what it is because churches decided to meet new people and new places, to walk with my parents who had moved away from family and give them a church home in a new place. And so the church, truly God on earth, continues to step into every corner of the world. And our work is to live as the ones who are sent into the world in the name of Jesus, this Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's even in the face of the places where that is most difficult to proclaim. The Caesarea Philippi or whatever that is for you. And that there we have to be bold enough to declare our answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Whenever and wherever we are. Now I think that answer in our lives as we try to tell the world who do we say that Jesus is, I think that's far more often lived than it is spoken. Anyone can say something on Sunday and go and do something different Monday through Saturday. Right? I mean, how many of us have seen that in the church even, right? Not here, obviously, but uh, in other churches, that we, I mean, that's the, biggest, uh, that's the biggest criticism people have of the church. It's just full of hypocrites. They say all of this stuff, and then we go out and we do something different. But our call is to live, to actually live as a people who are transformed by what we do in a way that contradicts the world around us and to do it in the name of Jesus in a way that people can see and hear and receive. I've heard one theologian call it, we live in an inviting strangeness. Our strangeness, not because we're just different or because we're this, but because we have found something so special that it means something for how we actually go about living our lives, not just on Sunday morning, but in the, throughout the week and wherever we are. And maybe this is where I know it's the hot takes, and maybe this is where I start to get a little bit spicy. But I really think the 20th century church decapitated our faith. I don't mean that in the sense of it killed it. I mean it removed our head from our body. Um, So much of Protestant theology in that time became so focused on faith. And I mean, I'm here as a Lutheran pastor who's, you know, the Lutheran refrain is we are justified by faith through grace apart from works of the law. Now, but the problem is, is as we got Martin Luther, the original Protestant theologians, all understood that faith as something that, yes, we believed, but because we believed it, it transformed our lives so that we lived differently with this new way of being. But as we moved in through the 20th century, it all became about these deep theological arguments, and faith got reduced to what happens between the ears rather than what it actually looks like for us to be changed. People went to church because, well, people go to church. We know the 1950, you know, picket fence, 2.5 kids and a dog, going to church on Sunday morning because we're American and that's what good Americans do or whatever the, you know, reasons were. 
but we had a decapitated faith because when it, our faith, what we say we believe, only gets reduced to what's between our ears, it separates us from actually living differently. Our, what we say becomes separate from what we do. And when what we say becomes separate from what we do, we've made a distinction in faith that I don't think is actually present in what we hear in Scripture. In Scripture, faith is what is lived and practiced, not just what is said. And I think we've come to so, so much focus on orthodoxy that we leave out orthopraxis, what it means to live as Christians in the world. Now, an aside, and here's your little Lutheran lesson for th- today. Uh, Lutherans have what we call law and gospel, and typically our sermons kind of have a law and gospel bent to it, meaning, so the law is what convicts us. It's um, that when we hear the word of God and it hits us and, you know, steps on our toes and makes us think, ooh, I might need to make some changes. Uh, so that's kind of the law, and then we have the gospel, and uh, that's when we hear the When we come and we're broken and we hear the word that we desperately need to hear, the good news that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was raised for me, yes, even for me. And again, this is going to be a lot more of a hot take in the Lutheran world than it may mean for you. But in the Lutheran world, people tend to separate the two. Like, law is bad, gospel is good, but really I think you can't have one without the other, and I don't think they are so indistinguishable. After all, for anybody experiencing addiction, there's a better way than this. May feel like law. But it also may be gospel. Because we know what that better way might be and what it can bring. Or, as one of my seminary professors made the disti- or, uh, broke down that distinction, if somebody comes home after cheating on their spouse and their spouse lo- looks lovingly in their eyes and says, I love you, I mean, that's the gospel, but goodness, anybody coming home into that is going to feel, like, feel that like the word of law. And so, law and gospel, what does that have to do with where I'm going? I say that so when you hear me focusing on the practice, that this sermon isn't just another wag of the finger saying, you need to live better because, goodness gracious, I've heard that sermon. Doesn't really work because nobody remembers the sermon. They think, gosh, that preacher was a jerk. <laughs> but I really think that our faith does call us to deeper action. And it's not just the big things like mission trips, but the thousands of little daily decisions that we make that are formed by faith. And they're formed by faith, not by convenience, the pursuit of something that takes us away from God. It's a life that's formed by the gospel. And when that calls us to be different in the world, That is fundamentally good news. Because I think it's good news that when we are in the strange place, like Caesarea Philippi, and we are confronted with the powers and ideals of this world that contradict the nature of the gospel or who Jesus is and who Jesus calls us to be, it's in those times, our answer to who do you say that I am is good news. And I think that's why we call it faith formation, not just faith education. Uh, I like the gym metaphor here. The only way to build strength is through resistance. In our faith, we understand 
Who do we say that Jesus is when we are on these border towns of Caesarea Philippi? It's when we have to wrestle with the boundaries of, okay, I'm in this situation. How do I act here? It's, okay, I'm in this new situation. I'm not quite sure what I'd be doing. And then we reflect, who do I say that I am? Who do we say that God is? And so I think it's in good news that when we are in those places that we have this rock of the church to fall back onto, that we have formed ourselves to live in such a way that we can respond in a way that takes us closer to where we want to be and not just a step farther away from a life lived in Jesus Christ. I mean, we all know that the idols of this world, like at Caesarea Philippi, are casting shadows over our world. They look differently than statues. They look like the lust for money, lust for power, lust for influence. Any of the other things that you might be struggling with that we dare not name aloud, but cause damage in our lives. Or we watch the news, we see the consequences of storms, of wars, of our political divisions, and all of the other bad things that flood around us, overpowering us. And I think that cliff face for me has just been the metaphor that I have really resonated with these, this week. When you're in front of the, the, uh, the face of the rock, looking at all of these things that tower in front of us, our ability to answer, who do you say that I am, and to live as people who are actually transformed by that is good news. Because at, at the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers something that nothing else can. I mean, it's what, 11.15 on a Sunday morning, nobody got up because um, I'm a more entertaining preacher than Netflix. I think I'm all right, but I'm not that good, right? But it's because here In communities of faith, we find the people who are going to reach out when we're sick, who are going to help us up when we are down. And it is all for this common purpose and mission to make this world better and more Christ-like through what we do. And so that call to live as people who actually proclaim, not just in our mind, but in the things that we do throughout the week and wherever we are, the people who can proclaim, who do you say that I am? in everything that we do, that's the good news that our broken world needs. But I also think that's the good news that we need for ourselves. That we can actually live empowered and transformed as people of the gospel to go into this world in a new way. So in my work in the Synod office, um, which is our, just our word for presbytery, um, I primarily work with two kinds of congregations. So I work with our mission congregations that are new and growing, or I work with our congregations who, hey, we've got this really good idea. It seems like it's getting some traction, and we don't know what to do about it. So those are the kind of the good news uh, congregations. And then I work with our other congregations who send me a message in a droid saying, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are my only hope. Right? The congregations that are struggling, they have hit a wall and they don't know where they're going. I had a realization this week and they have the exact same problems. We don't have enough money. What mission congregation ever has enough money? We don't have enough people. Again, what mission congregation ever has enough people? We don't have enough volunteers. We don't have enough whatever it is. They have the exact same problems. 
but they could not be a more radically different setting. Because when you walk into a church that's healthy and growing and thriving, yeah, sure, they've got all those problems, but they know the answer to who do you say that I am? And I think that's really the question of those congregations. Who do you say that I am? Well, we may not have money, we may not have the people, but goodness knows, we know that Jesus is here among us, we know that we are people who worship the God who died and was raised for us. A a concrete example of this, um, a few weeks ago, we were uh, very fortunately, one of our Lutheran congregations dedicated a new worship building. One of our uh, Spanish-speaking congregations, Cristo Rey Lutheran Church in Lexington. Um, The Synod spent this big campaign, raised a lot of money. They built this new space. It's wonderful. I went to worship with with them that first Sunday, and I looked around me, and I said, Darn it, it's already too small, um, which is a good problem to have. But as I was gathered with the people, um, and because I'm speaking Spanish, I'm able to you know, have good conversations and all of that, they're telling me about the difference that this community has made in their life. They're telling me things like, when I came here, I was having this problem. I was in a new country. I was alone. I was depressed. I didn't know why I was here. But... Then I found this church, and I would just hear these wonderful stories of transformation. And like to a person, everybody who I had a conversation with, they knew exactly what that church meant to them, what difference it made in their lives. Who do you say that I am? That congregation knows who they say that Jesus is. And they know the life-changing consequences of living out their faith at the congregations who reach out because they're having problems, I hear different stories. And they're usually not about what God is doing in the church, but, well, gosh, 30 years ago, we used to have, and then they lay out their plan for how they get in the time machine and go back to just how it was 30 years ago. I'm sure there's no problems like that in the Presbyterian church, though, right? No? Okay. But again, thinking about the differences and thinking about how... Again, in the same problem, in the front of the same rock face. Who do you say that I am? And I would even say in our own lives. The difference that I know in my life when I've hit those moments where I didn't know what to do, I've hit those walls. It's really that rock to be able to know and to have been able to have experienced who this Jesus is what he has done in my life, what gives me the power to continue in spite of all that it is to see. And so this is where, again, maybe this is where my take gets a little spicy because um, just kind of the, um, the, how the sausage is made, I have written and rewritten the end to this sermon like at least three different times this week. I still wasn't happy with it. So I'm actually stealing... Um, running with something one of my mentors once told me. And he once told me that the sermon doesn't really start until the preacher sits down and shuts up. Because, yeah. (laughs) Because then that's when it really starts to live. And that's the challenge I'm going to leave with. I'm not going to, you know, wrap it up in a nice little bow. I'm not going to... um, you know, land with some wonderful stirring point. I tried to find that all week, couldn't get there. 
but I'm going to leave you with homework. And so you get to decide how the sermon starts and ends. And I'm going to leave you with your homework of finding an intentional way this week to ask yourself on the question in your day-to-day moments, who do I say that Jesus is? I mean, we have these nice things that like to remind us all the time, set an alarm for a random time at the day, and in that moment stop and say, okay, who do I say that Jesus is? Whether it's Monday at 1 o'clock, whether it's you know, Tuesday at 3, but what, or if you just want to make that your intentional meditation for whenever and wherever you are. But in that moment, who do you say that Jesus is? What's the story of your faith that's telling? Whose story are you telling? Is it yours or God's? And how are you living out the good news in a world that desperately needs it? Amen. Some of y'all are salty because the questions that you (laughs) texted in, I apologize in advance. All right. How, we're just going to start with the toughest one. All right. How can we evangelize a gospel that is only good news for those of us who believe and for the rest of the human race, this gospel, which includes eternal punishment as a form of justice, is very bad news? All right. I'm going to have to see that again. All right. Somebody's a Carolina fan that lost yesterday. (laughs) So I am a Tar Heel, so I don't know if that makes a difference for how this is received. But uh, um, yeah, I think I would question the assumption that the gospel is only good news for those who believe. Um, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, even going back to that, the Hebrew people were chosen not to be the chosen people, but for the sake of the world. And I think likewise, I mean, it's, you know, God's not just working in and among the believers, but again, you know, in places like Caesarea Philippi. Um, yeah, let me see that again. All right. I mean, I think. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think the gospel is only good news for those who believe. Um, I mean, because if you think about it, even for people who have a very strong con- conversion story, um, a thinking of people who I know who have come to the faith later in life. They've been able to tell stories about how God was working all along the way to get them where they are now. And I even think, too, uh, the sun shines on the good and it shines on the bad. I think I read that somewhere. Um, that was a Bible quote. I just couldn't remember the scripture there. But uh, Well, and even, too, I'll, I'll just even... Just practically, like if we think about going back to kind of what I was framing, like we all know the problems of the world. We all know kind of the ways that, in in every way, we all carry in some way on our shoulders the burdens of things that we can't control. But if we as Christians lived in ways that shared the gospel continually, that's not just good news for us who believe, but for the world um so no i think that's great i appreciate you tackling that one head on that might have been the toughest question that we've had this whole series okay (laughs) why do you think peter was the only one to respond to jesus's question of who do you say that i am do you think that the other disciples felt the same way as peter I think Peter's an interesting character because he's usually the first one to have an answer and it's not always right. (laughs) But I think that's why um, 
it makes it so interesting that we get this from Peter because, so this was uh, Matthew 16, just a few places before, or a few chapters before, we had uh, Jesus and then by extension Peter walking on water for at least a few steps. And then when Matthew falls in, Jesus looks at him and says, you of little faith, why didn't you believe or why did you doubt after he sinks? And uh, so then we get, you know, a few chapters here, we get, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Okay, great. Don't tell anybody. Um, And then we get to the end of the gospels and it's, okay, yeah, you say all the right things, but don't worry, you're going to deny me three times. So I think in that way, Peter, I don't know if I can say why, but I think it is a really fascinating example of, I'll say how I've experienced my own faith, but I think I can extrapolate this to how we often experience our faith, where it's we have these moments of extreme highs and we have these moments of extreme lows. And uh, for us to see that from the person who holds the keys, um, you know, speaks to God's grace for all of us and and really is how we see that um, played out. I will say too, I think Doubting Thomas gets a bad example because if you look at the Gospel of John, Okay, we know him as Doubting Thomas, but if you go back to the middle of the gospel, Jesus wants him to go uh, to a place that they'd already been kicked out, and then the disciples are saying, no, we can't go there. You know how that went the last time. And then Thomas is the one to say, no, 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 let's go with him so that we might die also. So um, the other disciples are probably right there with Peter if if, uh, in spirit, if not in, in documented response of what we have in the gospel. All right, and your last question, is there anywhere in your life where it's a, it's a little trickier for you to live out that love and live out mm-hmm. that good news? Like, I don't have a Parkside sticker on my car <laughs> because I drive really aggressively and I don't want people to think ill of Parkside. Do you have any such places? Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, what's a good example? Um, no, I'm trying to think of a good example that I can share. No, it's, uh, actually, I'll say this. In the position I have, I see the, how the sausage is made of the church. Um, I went into ministry so I wouldn't have to do paperwork or math or budgets, and now I have to do a lot of paperwork and math and budgets. And uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, not that I can't do those things, but it's not necessarily the things that bring me joy in ministry. So I think for me, it's the the connecting the drudgery of some of the less desirable aspects of what I do for a living with the why. You know, okay, no, I'm doing this so that. And so I think for me that's one of them. Um, And then, you know, there's the sports and screaming at the TV and all of that. But uh, (laughs) Thank you. It's nice to know that pastors are human too. That we are. (laughs) With that, we will continue in worship. And feel free if you have any more uh, questions to text them in and Colin will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live.